Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we'll begin our journey through the most self-destructive part of Abbasid history, a period English-language commentaries refer to as the Anarchy in Samarra. The first step will be for us to go through Al-Muntasr's reign. Its brevity will leave us plenty of time to establish some context and familiarize ourselves with a few of the main figures going forward. The next four leaders of the Ummah will all have to share the spotlight with men who would have served them far more submissively in a recently vanished past. Brace yourself, we are about to venture into a whole new political landscape. Episode 68, Al-Muntasir and the Beginning of the End We paused our narrative at a real cliffhanger last time, so maybe we should forego the usual opening ramble and jump straight back into the action. There's a lot of confusion surrounding the unexpected coup against al-Mutawakkid. Luckily, though, it is mostly confined to who started it and why. We find many more details this time around compared to previous court intrigues, like the death of al-Hadi, for example. The existence of multiple narratives certainly contributes to this, and it's largely because two of our main chroniclers, Al-Yaqubi and Al-Tabari, were around to witness these calamitous events and hear from myriad contemporaries about their first-hand experiences. So let's return to the fateful night Al-Mutawakkil was killed and go through it in as much detail as we can muster. On the 11th of September, 861, the Caliph was in his new palace drinking with his buddy Al-Fatiha ibn Khalqan when a band of Turks burst in on them and killed the pair. The group consisted mainly of little Bugha's men, but Al-Yaqubi says Atamish, Al-Muntasr's closest Turkish associate, was also present. As we'll come to see, our sources agree that the Turks were to blame for Al-Mutawakkil's death, but disagree on how complicit the Abbasid heir really was. The assassins only managed to eliminate two members of the Caliphate's triumvirate, the third, Ubaidullah ibn Yahya ibn Khaqan, the caliph's influential vizier and key administrator, was working late in a nearby office. After hearing all the commotion, he and his attendants pieced together what was going on and ran for their lives. They had to break down some blockaded doors, but they eventually made it to a nearby boat and sailed away to safety. Next, let's check in with the titular man himself. We are told Al-Muntasir was conveniently asleep in his room when it all went down. The Turks woke him up and informed him that Al-Fatih had murdered his father and been killed by the palace guard. That's when his secretary, Ahmad ibn Khasib, emerged from the crowd and led them in pledging their support to Al-Muntasir. It's worth taking the time to properly introduce ibn Khasib, as his 15 minutes of fame are about to begin and he's one to hog the spotlight. Originally an Egyptian tax agent, Ibn Khasib was working for the state when Ashinas came to power during Al-Mu'tasim's days. 
He rose up the ranks and was one of Ashinas's key secretaries arrested for financial impropriety by al wathiqs court. His posse had illegitimately snatched away a cool million dinar for his Turkish master, almost four tons of gold. The next time our sources mention his name, they refer to him as Al-Muntasir's secretary. Who appointed him goes unsaid, but if his career is any indication, the Turks probably had a hand in it. Ahmad ibn Khasib immediately took the role of master of ceremonies upon himself. After getting all the present leadership to pledge their loyalty to the new caliph, he ordered men to fetch the two young Abbasid princes so they may do the same. Al-Mu'taz and Al-Mu'ayyad were thus both summoned to pledge to their brother. Interestingly, the story they were given was that Al-Mutawakkil had choked on his wine. Learning about Al-Fatih's slaying by the guard would have probably been a dead giveaway, if you'll excuse the pun. See, Al-Fatih was also father-in-law to the young Al-Mu'taz, who just weeks earlier had sired a son from Al-Fatih's daughter. Now that they were being asked to pledge to their brother, the 12-year-old Al-Mu'ayyad went right away, but Al-Mu'taz tried to stall for as long as he could. This makes perfect sense. After all, only days earlier, he'd led the Ummah in prayer for the last Friday of Ramadan, an occasion which afforded him all the pomp usually reserved for a caliph. The young prince tried to get out of pledging by telling the envoy that he'd go see his brother in the morning, but the Turk insisted, and eventually got the 15-year-old to accompany him back to Al-Muntasir. As they passed Ubaidullah's office, Al-Mu'taz asked about the vizier and Al-Fatih. The prince's escort lied and said that the two administrators had already submitted to his brother and were both out arranging for pledges to be taken by the masses later that day. This was exactly what Al-Mu'taz needed to hear. And resistance from his end vanished after that. Now at ease, he and Al-Mu'ayyad both pledged their support to Al-Muntasir. Al-Tabari preserves the entire oath that the caliph's secretary, Ahmad ibn Khasib, came up with. It's an unusually long and overwrought pledge, which emphasizes one's moral and religious obligations towards the caliph, a sure sign of insecurity on the part of the new administration. They must have realized how bad the optics were, and did all they could to preempt any opposition. Other hints that they were worried about challengers include the immediate award of 10 months' worth of salaries to the soldiers, and the banishment of an uncle of Al-Muntasir from Samarra into house arrest in Baghdad. Alright, that was day one, by far the most detailed of Al-Muntasir's short reign. Earlier, I said that it's thanks to our contemporaneous authors that we know so much about these events. But Ali Aqubi's contribution is comically minuscule. He covered this caliph in less than 200 words. His condensed version says Al-Muntasir became caliph in December, and Atamish and Ahmad ibn Khasib were his handlers. He received his brother's pledges, paid the troops a handsome purse, abandoned his father's new capital, removed his brothers from succession, then died in June. So as you can probably tell from Ali Aqubi's brief but accurate summary, this caliph won't be around long enough to have an impact on the caliphate. There are still a number of notable developments for us to go through, after which we'll take some time to reflect 
and better adjust to the new state of affairs. Let's stick with the theme of Al-Muntasir's brothers to wrap it up before moving on. Shortly after he came to power, the caliph was pressured into removing Al-Mu'taz and Al-Mu'ayyad from the official line of succession. For once, our sources concur. The Turks were worried about what would befall them should a different son of Al-Mutawakkil come to the throne. So mere weeks after having been summoned to pledge their allegiance, the 12- and 15-year-old brothers of the caliph were brought back to renounce their positions in line for the throne. Once again, we are told that Al-Mu'ayyad just went with it, while the heir apparent tried to resist. For his diffidence, Al-Mu'taz was threatened and tortured until he cracked. Both brothers then signed declarations of withdrawal, drafted by the caliph's vizier Ahmad ibn Khasib. This was all done in a public ceremony, attended by the most powerful men in the caliphate, Wasif, the two Bughas, the Tahirid governor of Baghdad, and other key members of the administration. Our sources don't even mention al-Muntasir in this decision, and they make it clear that this was entirely the work of those around him. Tell you what, though, let's leave all speculation until the end and just plow ahead with the events reported during his reign. Next up on our roster is Wasif's campaign against the Byzantines. In early 862, the caliph told his general that one of them had to go face the empire in battle, and Wasif said he'd gladly go on the caliph's behalf. He was given 10,000 men, many of them non-Turks who were under his command for the first time, and sent on his way. While it's not an important detail, Wasif's top lieutenant was Muzahim ibn Khaqan brother to the recently murdered Al-Fatih. It just seemed a noteworthy irony that the brother who entered politics met a violent end, while the one who served in the armed forces was far removed from harm's way. Another rooster roasts while the eagle soars. Theorizing and disagreement abound when it comes to the caliph's decision to send Wasif on his first military campaign in forever. Many accounts say that Al-Muntasir felt too restricted by the presence of the powerful general, and this was his way of regaining a measure of autonomy in the capital. Some take it even further, and claim the caliph attempted to find a substitute for the Turks by writing to the governor of Khurasan about recruiting new armies. Others still say Wasif's displacement from Samarra was masterminded by the vizier Ahmad ibn Khasib, who sought ever more control over al-Muntasir and the treasury. We'll sort through these interpretations later. The last thing we have to cover is reports of a couple rebellions against the state in 862, one in Yemen and the other outside Mosul, much closer to home for the government. Predictably, we find more details about the latter, which took place in the mountainous parts of northern Iraq. The Rabia a sizable Arab tribal confederation, allied with the local Kurds, and the two refused to recognize Abbasid control of the region. This was incredibly dangerous for the regime because the taxes of the fertile Mesopotamian province were a major part of Iraq's overall revenue. A prolonged decline in income would seriously impair the state's ability to pay the salaries and upkeep of the Turkish soldiers. Luckily for the caliphate, it wasn't difficult for its general, Sima al-Turki, 
to defeat the rebels in successive battles, averting that terrifying possibility for now. The very last thing we hear about Al-Muntasir pertains to his demise. And like almost everything else about him, it is contested and many of the narrations are clearly warped. He either died of disease at the age of 25, or was poisoned by the Turks, or his vizier, or both. The caliph seems to have fallen ill in the late spring, and conspiratorial narrations usually say that the guilty party bribed his doctor to poison either his drink or a scalpel used to treat him. Since Al-Muntasir's son was only a baby, the burden of selecting the next caliph once again fell to the state's all-powerful administrators. In Wasif's absence, the council consisted of the two Bughas, Atamish and Ahmad ibn Khasib. The vizier took the lead, and he comes off as the central figure in this affair. The council agreed that whoever they chose must be a descendant of their original master, Al-Mu'tasim, but that no son of Al-Mutawakkil would be considered for fear of what he might do to the men implicated in his father's murder. Accounts differ on the details, but the only Abbasid name they mention is that of the ultimate choice, Ahmad ibn Muhammad ibn al-Mu'tasim. Thus, al-Muntasir was replaced by a relatively unknown cousin of his, roughly the same age, maybe a year or two older, who was bestowed with the regnal title al-Musta'in billah, he who relies on God. His ascension did not go smoothly. This is a good point for us to pause our narrative once again, to sort out any controversy and take stock of the situation. The confusion surrounding Al-Muntasir's short reign can be boiled down to three main questions. How implicated was he in his father's murder? How much power did he actually have while he ruled? And how did he die? The first of these is by far the easiest. Al-Muntasir was directly responsible for his father's death. Even accounts which try to minimize his role can't deny the fact that his participation was a prerequisite for any successful plot against the caliph. While the Turks are roundly blamed for the actual assassination, narrations asserting the involvement of other groups always make their connection with al-Muntasir rather than with Wasif or Little Bugha. For example, we find claims that Mu'tazilite sympathizers were the ones who turned son against father, and others that say religious extremists, scandalized by al-Mutawakkil's indulgent lifestyle, somehow convinced al-Muntasir to off his dad. We won't get into them any further. My point is these questionable accounts say the various groups tried to reach out to the heir, not the Turks. Actually, a third and final variation of these merits further elaboration. Al-Muntasir's ascension brought relief to the Shia, who had suffered terribly during his father's reign. He returned some lands and regular pensions to the Hashemite clan and ended their ritual cursing at mosques. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, the caliph allowed the resumption of religious visits to Karbala. It's worth noting that Al-Muntasir didn't get the chance to overhaul the administration, and the judges were holdovers from his father's days. In Egypt, for example, onerous restrictions were still imposed on Shia and Hashemites alike. They couldn't travel freely, 
nor own lands or slaves. Worst of all, their testimony in court automatically lost to that of other Muslims, meaning that anyone could legally lay claim to their property. Although we know this caliph didn't share his father's censorious religious views, the Shia are the only group we hear about, and there's nothing in our sources on Mu'tazilites, Christians, or any of the other oppressed minorities. Anyway, this is probably why the Shia are accused of turning al-Muntasir against his father, because they benefited so much from his leniency towards them. I don't buy into that, however. It seems more likely to me that al-Muntasir was simply undoing one of his father's most unpopular decisions. Actually, even that might be overstating it a little. He just didn't actively persecute the Shia. That really seems to be the long and short of it. But we're getting off topic. Al-Muntasir was indisputably responsible for his father's death because it could not have happened without him. The second question is a little harder to answer as the caliph's legacy has been distorted by all the influential figures who outlived him. I think we can agree that Al-Muntasir didn't come off as a particularly commanding or empowered caliph during his short reign. Instead, it's his vizier, Ahmad ibn Khasib, whom we hear about the most. He comes up in pretty much every administrative decision, not as a mere observer, but a puppet master, cleverly manipulating everyone to his advantage. It's Ibn Khasib who took pledges for al-Muntasir, removed the other Abbasids, sent Wasif off to the Byzantine frontier, and according to some narrations, even killed his liege so he could pick a more biddable successor. This is all disputed, though. Many maintain that the vizier was only ever a loyal servant to the caliph, and that al-Muntasir wielded authority through his capable right-hand man. Others say Ibn Khasib's sympathies lay with his original paymasters, the Turks. So ultimately, the question of al-Muntasir's power seems to hinge on who the vizier was working for. The caliph's reign was really short, and everyone's interests aligned for most of it. The only issue they diverged on was the forceful removal of al-Mu'taz and al-Mu'ayyad from the succession, especially the torture of the young heir apparent into submission. Ibn al-Khasib fully backed the Turks on that one, and many narrations make al-Muntasir's displeasure quite clear. This does partially absolve him of usurping his brothers, but it also throws the caliph's impotence into sharp relief. I think the role of Ibn al-Khasib is especially controversial because he had been catapulted into an incredibly influential position. Not only was he responsible for court decisions, but he also had full oversight and control of the treasury. It seems to me like he wanted to work closely with the Turks, but from the stance of an all-powerful independent administrator, in the vein of al-Mu'tasim's treasurer, Ibn Zayyat. That's why we hear about some push and pull in his relationship with Wasif. But I don't see any fundamental misalignment between the military and civil administrations, at least not yet. As for our final question, technically there's not enough information to determine whether al-Muntasir died of an illness or was poisoned. Narrations alleging foul play don't seem especially credible and they generally come in two varieties. 
Some are concerned with highlighting the untrustworthy nature of the Turks or government officials more generally. The others cast the caliph's death as comeuppance for having killed his father. While I don't think anyone killed the caliph, I still want to explain why we find such controversy surrounding his demise. First of all, his passing was quite sudden, and the death of a 25-year-old from disease is always going to leave room for conspiracy theories. More importantly, though, depending on what you thought was going on all the way at the top, his passing seemed to benefit different parties. Narrations which say al-Muntasir was trying to replace the Turks see them as his killers for obvious reasons. Others focus on how pliant his successor was and conclude that it was the vizier who took out the caliph to get even more control over the state. I guess both explanations are conceivable, but I still don't think either party had sufficient cause to murder al-Muntasir. The sad reality is that the Turks will be directly responsible for the death of the next three caliphs. Since they had already eliminated al-Mutawakkil, it may have seemed to observers like this caliph must somehow also fit into the regicidal pattern. But an assassin's blade is only one of many things which could kill a young prince in the 9th century, and it's not like al-Muntasir gave his formidable minders any good reason to take him out. Suggesting that the Turks were blasé about killing caliphs completely ignores how radical their coup against al-Mutawakkil really was. It was a borderline unthinkable act, born of absolute desperation. Terrified at what might become of them should they lose the caliph's favor, they gambled everything on the relationship they had built with his son. That they would casually replace him only six months later for no good reason does not sound realistic to me in the least. So, in conclusion, Al-Muntasir conspired with the Turks to replace his father, but died before he had a chance to exert any authority over the men who brought him to power. The Abbasid chosen to replace him was an unremarkable grandson of Al-Mu'tasim, not even the son of a previous caliph. This relative obscurity meant he lacked any notable support, and Al-Musta'in was acutely aware of the fact that he owed his position entirely to the men who picked him, something that made him like putty in their hands. He made no changes to the administration. Ibn al-Khasib remained vizier, Atamish became the hajib, and the Turks all retained their positions as well. As we'll come to see, Al-Musta'in will prove to be little more than a wasteful figurehead and a ruinous choice for Caliph. There's one interesting narration I came across which alleges that Big Bugha gave an enlightened speech when they were all trying to pick a new Caliph. It says he counseled his peers to choose someone stronger, older, and more world-weary than their previous choice. He said it was imperative to give the Turks a commanding presence they could unite behind, that only a worthy master could right their ship. It was wise advice, but Ibn Khasib's lobbying for al-Musta'in won the day after he assured everyone that he could personally guarantee the young Abbasid would do whatever they asked of him. It's rare to find a narration which depicts a member of the Turks in such a positive manner. 
while I'd like to believe it, I think it's a little too prophetic to be true. It's also worth remembering that Big Bugha is the only high-ranking Turk not implicated in Al-Mutawakkil's murder since he was far away at the time. He was also an old man about to die naturally with no Abbasid blood staining his hands. So if you were going to make up any story about a good Turk, it might as well be him. The narration itself is pretty flimsy anyway, and in it Big Bugha doesn't even nominate a candidate for the council to consider, so it's hard to take seriously. The whole vibe is just that these experienced administrators should have known better than to pick a puppet. Which brings us to the last point I want to address before ending for today. Why? Why was it such a terrible idea for the Turks to have full control of the court? To answer that question, we need to consider the role of the caliph ever since Al-Mu'tasim established the Turks back in the mid-830s. As the founder of their military caste, it's unfair to expect any of his successors to wield the same sort of power he had over the Turks, but we should regard his reign as the optimal model for this sort of government. Since the caliph lacked the administrative skills needed to run a state, he had the capable Ibn Ziyad empowered to do so on his behalf. This freed al-Mu'tasim from responsibilities which he would have been ill-suited for, and made his role the management of these relationships at the top. If the Turks, or Ibn Zayyat, or Ibn Abi Du'ad had issues with somebody, or one another, the caliph was the one who arbitrated those high-voltage conflicts. Al-Watiq's reign was sort of a continuation of his dad's, though a little rougher around the edges. The Turks embezzled more money during his time, and Ibn Zayyat had to make the indifferent caliph go after their secretaries to keep them in line. Basically, the credit should go to Al-Mu'tasim for establishing such stable relationships between the top branches of the government he bequeathed his son. It was Al-Mutawakkil who shook things up, first a little, then a lot. His removal of Itah and Ibn Zayyat did spook the Turks a bit, but it wasn't a crisis so long as he still needed their soldiers on the battlefield. But towards the end of his reign, Al-Mutawakkil began to increasingly use his treasurer and vizier, Ubaidullah, to starve the generals of the resources they needed to maintain their influence, an unmistakable threat to more than just their positions, but their entire reason for being. I don't mean to victim blame, but it was foolish of him to behave so invincibly. It has a way of tempting fate. With any luck, Al-Muntasir would have eventually been able to re-establish a working relationship between the top branches of government. His vizier, Ibn al-Khasib, does seem to have been a slick operator, but since the caliph had a personal relationship with the top Turkish generals, he could have come to wield true power if he played his cards right. The incoming Al-Musta'in never stood a chance. He had nobody's respect, and so the Turks now understood that Ibn al-Khasib was in full control of the court. What's more is that they didn't care if the vizier fancied himself the next Ibn Zayyat. In their mind, he still worked for them, and they expected him to rubber-stamp all their administrative needs. Seems like an argument waiting to happen, doesn't it? To make matters worse, 
it seems like the top generals had only been able to keep their men in line because it meant something that they had a special relationship with the caliph. This was no longer the case. As the only group left in power, the Turks simply could not stand united any further, and mistrust exploded into open conflict before long. We'll get our first taste of that together next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. (music) 